Okay, everybody, welcome to I Don't Care with me, Kevin Stevenson. Really excited to have you on today. Uh, and, you know, I got to talk about this again. Talked about it a little bit last week when we won the national championship in men's basketball. Thank you very much. Our very first one. Even though our women have won three, I'm kind of a proud alum. But we have a big parade tonight on the day that we are uh, recording. And so, Going to be talking with Dr. Kathy Bunning, the CEO of Fairfield Memorial Hospital, right before I skate off to our uh, parade, but not going to cut her short because she's got a lot to say. So, Kathy, welcome to I Don't Care. Well, thank you for having me, Kevin. This is a big honor for, for myself as well. Thank you. Well, uh, the honor is certainly ours. You've done some great things in rural health care. Really, really excited to, to talk to you about that. You know, I spent some time in rural health care, really have a passion for that. You know, here in Waco, we have a pretty large catchment area, about nine counties, primarily rural outside of McLennan County and Waco. And so, uh, you know, you're doing some things that typically, you know, aren't being done in rural healthcare. So first of all, tell us about Fairfield, Illinois. Tell us about your hospital. I'd love to. Um, Fairfield Memorial Hospital sets in Wayne County, Illinois. We're South Central. We're... Uh, not quite midway. We're more than probably two-thirds of the way down the state because Illinois is a very long state. Mm -hmm. We have a population uh, in Wayne County of just under 17,000, but we have the opportunity to sit right next to two counties that do not have hospitals. Hmm. So we look towards Edwards County and White County along with our own home county of Wayne and we looked at about having 42,000 lives as being responsible for, making sure they have the preventative health and acute care health that they might need during out their uh, time on this earth. Okay. And so you're a, you're a critical access hospital, so 25 yes. beds, right? Yes, we have 25 beds. Okay. We try to keep everyone in uh, or, or try to get them healed and their treatments uh, started so that they can continue either in our skilled care unit if they're not quite ready for home discharge. And then we usually send them home with uh, home care as well. Okay, very good. And, and I was looking at, you, at your information, you have about 250 employees and 90 credentialed physicians and providers. That's impressive for a town of your size. Uh, it is, we're very fortunate that we actually, we actually run about 300 employees at this time okay. and we're looking to have an additional 60, uh, 67 uh, employees hired both professional and a few unskilled when we open our new expansion tower that we're building right now. Yeah and we're going to talk about that too I can't wait. Okay uh, our 90 physicians uh, half of them are on site taking care of our patients. Mm -hmm. A lot of the others are the physicians who we have telehealth services with maybe that they do partial treatments such as maybe a neurologist who reads our sleep studies or pathologist who may only be in the hospital two days a week and not five days a week. So I don't want people to think that we have 90 physicians every day in-house. Sure, sure. No, I, I know how to count in rural health care, trust me. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so, so one thing that I saw that you did that fortunately my, uh, my organization did as well, we didn't lay anybody off and we actually have grown quite a bit during COVID. Tell me about what you did and how you did it because I know the financial constraints that occur in, you know, in rural health care. 
How did you do that? Well, I, it took a lot of teamwork, and that's one of the things I am the proudest of. We were able to, to get our employee workforce together. And as anyone that understands healthcare knows that we're a service organization, and we can't provide that service without our employees. They are the, the lifeblood, the lifeline of, of who we are and what it is that we're trying to accomplish. So we got them together when we explained to them that we might need you to work in an area that is not naturally where you like to work. Yeah. I'll give you a couple examples. We needed so much additional housekeeping services that when we looked at the fact that our volumes were dropping during the COVID height of the pandemic, so that we didn't have as many um, charts to be coded. Mm -hmm. So we took a couple coders and cross-trained them to help clean the rooms wow. because we needed additional housekeepers and we didn't have enough work for all the coders. We took some of the nurses out of our clinics. We have four clinics and asked them to work night shift on our COVID unit. So we took people who had the right skill sets out of their comfort zone and put them in where we felt was a mission critical position that was unfilled. And by being able to have the cooperation of our entire staff, we were able to meet the needs of our community members, uh, regardless of where their uh, specialties may lie. Okay, so you were talking about your COVID unit. How big did you, uh, of a unit did you have? We had 20 beds that we could have uh, had COVID patients in if uh, the need was there. Okay. I think at any one time uh, we had 19 patients. Good grief, patients. yeah. Yes, and for a rural hospital, that was a lot. Yeah, you know, we saw that here, here at my hospital, we're licensed for 238 acute. Mm -hmm. And we, there was one day that we taught that at 103 COVID. Wow. And, and yes. you know, much, I'm sure, you know, you've seen this before. We had, uh, there were a couple of days that our census uh, was over 250. Yes. So we had people everywhere. Yes, so, you were surging. Yeah, yeah, we really were. And but, but looking at some of our referring hospitals, we have, I think, four critical access hospitals that refer to us. Mm -hmm. Kind of the same boat that you were in. You know, they yes. were in the, you know, low to mid-teens for, you know, a lot of January, because that's really when we got hit the hardest here in mm -hmm. Central Texas, January and the first part of February. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, really interesting. And, and wasn't it great, you know, you mentioned the teamwork. I mean, that was just phenomenal because we expressed, uh, we experienced the same thing. Yes. You know, I had, you know, we had to shut down our outpatient therapy. So I've had therapists and, and techs uh, screening at our doors. Exactly. You know? So. Yes. You know, it, it's, and I think long-term, you know, not only the teamwork that it's building, but really cross-training of skills is yeah. going to be phenomenal for us. Oh, yes. Flexibility is key to sustainability in my mind. Yeah. Um, you know, being rural, some people like to say that, you know, you have to be the jack of all trades, so to speak. Well, we're putting that, um, that type of logic to work. And Good. it has been tremendous, absolutely tremendous. That is that is very, very cool. So you mentioned your $24 million expansion. I want to hear all about that. What are y'all doing? Okay, well, I know a lot of people think, oh, you were crazy to continue this expansion. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> That's okay. I've been called a lot worse. Um, basically, we signed the contract in November of 2019, and we broke ground and started construction uh, January of 2020. And as everyone knows, March of 2020 
we went into a worldwide uh, U.S. pandemic. Yeah. And you would think, well, okay, we've started. And we based upon uh, the needs of our community. We did a community healthcare needs assessment. Mm -hmm. And from that, we abstracted what was it that our community members really thought that they needed to have in their local hometown hospital. It wasn't, our strategic vision wasn't what we as senior leaders wanted. It was needed to be and was, what did our community members need? They needed more access to 24 hour care. They needed uh, aging care. They wanted uh, some type of care that wasn't nursing home, but still some additional care for the elderly. But more than anything, they wanted orthopedic services. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, we did not have ORs large enough for orthopedic services that met the Illinois Department of Public Health yeah. code. We didn't have an orthopod. So we had to do a lot of work. And once we identified the physician that would come back and lead us with orthopedic services, we knew we had to build them. We had to build him his operating suites. We had to build him a clinic space that met the needs of an active ortho, uh, orthopod. And that would include radiology right outside the exam rooms so that when his patients came to see him in his clinic, and almost every patient's gonna require some x-rays. Sure. So we need them to be able to just go down the hall and get what they need and go back to their exam room, not necessarily exit the clinic space and go into the main hospital into the regular radiology suite. So we knew that we needed to build and build for patient flow. So when we started this, like I said, in January of 2020 and the pandemic hit, mm -hmm. it didn't take us very long to say, you know what, we're building for the reasons that are important. And that is to meet the healthcare needs of our community. So let's go. Pandemic's yeah. here, but we've started, let's not stop. So we continued on. Now, what we've learned has been phenomenal. You have to be very flexible because one whole uh, section of our subcontractors were plumbers. Every one of them got COVID. Oh, so there we had to stop all the plumbing yeah. because they were out for two weeks. And then the next thing we knew, some of the masonry uh, workers, some of them got COVID. So that took not only them out, but some of their co-workers just, just to quarantine because of the proximity mm -hmm. of where they've been working. But I think one of the best things that have happened with building during a pandemic is we were able in the early stages to rearrange the design of what it is that we were building. Okay. And so number one, when we designed our expansion project, we had no idea that we were gonna need an exorbitant number of negative pressure rooms. Yeah. So we redesigned and we're having a lot more negative pressure rooms built into the new expansion. We had no idea we were going to need extended laundry services. So that has been put into play. You talk about PPEs, that's personal protective equipment. We need to store them somewhere. We sure. need a specific PPE storage. So that had to be redesigned. So when I look at it, the pandemic was, the timing of the pandemic was a silver lining for us during the expansion. Mm -hmm. Just think if we have built this one year earlier, and then we would have found out, oh my gosh, now we have to go retrofit for negative pressure rooms. You can't add more square footage for storage. You either right. build it or you don't. So um, in my mind, I think this all has worked out in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Few headaches, a lot of hiccups, but really the, the bottom line, the end result is going to be 
patient-friendly services that are very important to the community that we live in. See, that's tremendous. Hey, one question I had, have you experienced uh, difficulties getting, uh, getting materials and supplies? Yes. Yeah. For instance, right now, all the cabinetry needs to go in and they're telling us that we're on a six to eight week delay. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I... at the very beginning, before the pandemic, we were seeing um, steel prices going very, very high. Mm-hmm. And since we weren't building one level, we were building three levels, three stories. We were very dependent upon a lot of steel girders. Sure. So uh, we have had some delays because of uh, building supplies. Yeah, uh, I've, I've heard that. We, we've done a little bit of construction. We've added a lot of capital equipment over the last year, fortunately. Uh, but uh, uh, supply availability has been a real struggle for, for us on a very small scale, but for a number of our colleagues around here. So, so Kathy, here's my question. And if I'm getting too personal, you know, let me know. How are you funding this? <laughs> uh, well, I tell you what, we are a very strong community and our foundation that, uh, director and I worked very closely with the foundation board and we, we decided that we needed $5 million just for the extras, just mm-hmm. for new beds, for bed stands, for Rose of the Robot. Yeah. Or our orthopedic surgeries. So we were able, and within less than eight months, we raised $5 million. That's tremendous. Yeah. Yes. You know, and, and again, yeah, that's what I found whenever I was in outstate Nebraska. The local community just rallies around the hospital. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're, going to, they're going to come up with whatever funds typically that, that we needed. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like your folks are the same, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So, go ahead. The National Rural Health Centers are saying that 46% of rural hospitals may be looking at closure, but they're definitely running in the red. And when you look at that, I think the community members here realize if we've got a hospital and it's doing well, we need to support that hospital Mm -hmm. and rally around them because we might be one of those communities that may lose their hospital. Yeah. We've seen a number of, of rural hospitals close here in Texas. Uh, I think we're probably 20 plus over the, about the last eight to nine years. Oh, Texas um, has been hit hard. Yeah, it really has. And, you know, and again, I know, I know the pressure that you're under because not only you're providing care to your family and, and friends mm-hmm. and, and your neighbors, number one. Yes. Number two, you're probably the largest employer in your, in your town. We are. I guess. And then number three, it's just the the psychological effect of having a hospital in your town. Uh You know, uh, funny story. Years ago, I was doing something else. Uh, I was uh, I was in another uh, healthcare related career, but I happened to be out in far west Texas on the New Mexico border. I go to a small town. I find the hospital. There's one car in the parking lot. I go in and I see a guy sweeping the floor. I said, hey, could you direct me to the administrator? He said, that's me. And uh, so we got to talk and he'd grown up there. His mom had been the the director of nurses. You know, he mowed the lawn as a kid. And and I said, okay, uh, what's your your average daily census? And he said, maybe 0.2. I said, so how many emergency visits do you see a month? He goes, maybe 25. I said, can I ask you a question? Why are you still open? He said, 
oil money and our community oh. wants a hospital. Okay. So we, we keep it. Yes. And, and so, so I know, I mean, the, the impact and again, the psychological impact of having a hospital in a, in a small town is huge. And so oh, yes. bless you for, for your calling because well, healthcare is a calling, rural health, that's a super calling. I'll tell you that much. So yes, I agree. So let's, let's shift to the pandemic. I mean, okay. not all of us, fortunately, we're in the midst of a big building project like you. But so, so tell me a little bit about how that impacted the hospital, uh, what you did in your community as far as education. Are you doing vaccines? Kind of, yeah, tell us the, your COVID story. Okay, well, we're like everyone else in the southern tip of the United States. We did not see that surge early on. So back in March, uh, we put together a COVID team. I mm -hmm. knew immediately that I needed to have a COVID champion from the medical staff. Yeah. So I talked with one of our doctors who, is, who probably sees the most um, patients in the clinic per day, and he likes the older adult uh, care. So he agreed to come on board, and he led our COVID team. And of course, the team itself was made up of, of various members of uh, department leaders throughout the organization that had, um, that was a stakeholder of keeping uh, the surge and the pandemic out of our doors. Mm -hmm. And if it gets into our doors, how do we handle it? Yeah. So we started that and thank goodness that we were able, we would sit every day in front of a television and listen to the president of the United States come on talking about what was happening on happening with the numbers happening with ppes should you wear a mask should you not wear a mask when all of that early early uh decision making was taking place we were meeting together as groups and then forming our plan well we were sitting back watching the city of new york mm -hmm. looking at what was happening there looking at the mercy ship that was brought into the bay of new york because they thought they were going to have this tremendous overflow oh. outside of hospitals and we were getting nervous but yet we had not seen any patients now we set up an emergency mobus tent so and we also had carports that we brought in so anybody that wanted to come in to be tested our medical team was already located and set up ready to go with all the computers and equipment and laboratory testing uh, capabilities with inside that tent but they would go outside and take care of the patients in their cars and we were doing anywhere from 200 to 350 tests a day wow. so we had to go out and buy a second platform so we had two different laboratory systems so that we could run faster results of our mm -hmm. our covid testing and be able to do it quicker. One platform can give us results within 47 minutes. The other one takes an hour and four minutes. But okay. by doing it double dueling there, we could get everybody resulted out pretty quick. Um, so we did this all the way through the summer. Then we were hit. September, October, and November. Boy, were we hit. Um, the nursing homes in our area were hit hard. The community members were hit hard. That's when we seen action in our COVID unit. So, in fact, we had two COVID units in an older skilled care unit that we're in, that we're building new for. We set up. We divided their um, unit into two units: the non-infectious unit and the infectious unit. And then on our medical surgical floor. We also had the 20 beds for the COVID or respiratory illness. And then we had the other beds and the intensive care beds that were open for uh, patients who did not require 
uh, infectious precautions. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did and how we made it through that step of it. Now we're seeing less and less patients and we're looking at what is our next step. So mm -hmm. we knew we needed to vaccine, vaccinate as many patients as possible. So we worked very clearly with our local health department and between the two of us, we felt like we were doing a pretty good job, but yet we weren't vaccinating more than 200 patients a week. Mm. We, knew we, we knew we needed to do more and do it faster. So we got on our governor's list and he allowed nine hospitals in the state of Illinois and Fairfield was chosen as one of the nine to have um, oh, uh, unlimited supply of vaccine. Okay. So one day we vaccinated 1200 people. Wow. That was a lot, our yeah, nursing staff lot. was tired, but we had a system. We brought everybody in by appointment. So I had six register people taking people call, uh, taking information for people calling in, wanting an appointment. When they came in, they immediately were screened. They were sent to a registration area. We then sent them directly uh, into the COVID vaccination area itself. They filled out a few more papers, got their vaccination, and then we sent them to the observation area. And in the observation area, we gave them all kinds of snacks and supplies, things so that, you know, just after you give blood or you give yeah. vaccination, you may get queasy. You need something. You need some nourishment. You need some liquids. We don't want you to get dehydrated. So we did that. So when they left our building, it took them about 45 minutes from beginning to end. And when they walked out, they had their vaccination, they had their paperwork, and they had nourishment and liquids. And I felt like we had done a great job in meeting their, their clinical needs as far as observing them for ill effects. We vaccinated about 4,000 people so far. And out of that 4,000, we've had one person faint and they came no, to- We did too. <laughs> they came to very quickly. Oh but there's not been any lingering effects from the vaccinations that I am aware of. No. We do keep track uh, with our local health department and of course our own medical doctors. So we feel like we've had really good outcomes with good. it. Good, good. So, so give me some of the statistics for your county. What was the positivity rate at its, at its highest? And I'll ask the morbid question, how many people did you lose? Uh, uh, we lost about 69 people. Wow. And that's a lot. In a that's community. a lot for a county for 17,000. Wow. Yes, it is. And some of those losses were in their 40s. See? Yes. Yeah. We had Not all youngest, of them. Yeah, our youngest patient was 30. Oh, it breaks yeah. your heart. Yeah. Just breaks your heart. Yeah. I know it really does. Uh, you know, we we were the primary, uh, there's two large hospitals. We're about, well, about the same size here in Waco. And we, pro we probably took care of about 80% of the COVID patients yes. here in our hospital. Yes. And, you know, so I ran some stats on, on mortality and, and everything else. And it was just, you know, it was heartbreaking, you know, yes. looking, breaking it down and, and just seeing the impacts. And, and as you said, so many, you know, under, young, you know, under 75. Yes. Uh, you know, we, lo we lost a ton in their 60s, not so many 59 and under. But it was just really, it was heartbreaking. It was, it was. Yeah. And we took care of probably 80% of our community as yeah. well. We contacted our tertiary facility. Uh, it would be Deaconess Hospital in Evansville, Indiana. Yeah. 
And we had our uh, chief of staff talk with their chief of staff just to see if there was something that we needed to be doing different. Did we need to transfer more patients? And they mm -hmm. said, no, you're giving all the same treatments. You're proning your patients. No. You're giving all the, uh, the fast flow oxygen. Mm -hmm. You're uh, making sure that you're giving the monoclonal um, antibody treatments. Yeah. You're giving the remdesivir when that was expected to be given at the time. Now we're not giving so much sure. of that. Sure. And we're given all the same treatments and the medications that they were doing uh, in the tertiary facility. And they said, please don't. Yeah. You're overflowing with patients. We have more than we can handle. And honestly, you're not gonna, we're not going to do anything different than what you're doing. Yeah. So that in the middle of our surge was a, a boost of confidence that the medical staff needed to hear because, you know, after starting to lose several you, you start to wonder, what am I missing? Right. What should I be doing different? And to come to find out that some people just react so violently to the virus that they succumb to it. Yeah. And um, once we, we were able to say, we don't like it, but we can accept it. Mm -hmm. And we know we're doing the best that anyone can do at this point. We just kept, kept coming back every day, doing the best we could. Yeah, well, being one of those tertiary hospitals that was overflowing, yeah, I, I thank you for being able to, to, to be able to handle your patients like that. We had, we had a, uh, one of our referring hospitals, uh, also critical access, that tried to transfer a patient to us, and we said, we just can't. We just don't have any room. We right. topped out at our ICU's 30 beds. We topped out at 55 in the ICU. Wow. At one time, yes. yeah. And so this hospital, and I'm, I'm pretty good friends with the CEO. And so we were talking a couple of weeks later. He said, remember that patient we were trying to transfer? I said, yeah. He said, I called 43 hospitals across the state of Texas and could not find a place to send them. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, so, so discouraging. Bless you. for That shows, number one, your high level of care that you provide there. And number two, your abilities to be able to provide that care for a long-term basis. So uh, that's fantastic. We might need for you to come to Texas. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, so, hey, in our last couple of minutes, Kathy, you know, give me some closing remarks, some good words, some, you know, any kind of tips for my uh, viewers and listeners. First of all, don't be discouraged if you have a rural hospital in your community. You know, every hospital knows what their niche is. And our niche is primary care and general mm -hmm. surgery. What we do, we do it very, very well. And the same for your community hospitals. What they do, mm -hmm. they know how to do it. Yeah. It's true. We'll never do hearts. We'll never do heads here. But you know what? We'll get you stabilized. We'll get you critically ready for transport. And within a matter of seconds, get you in the air to that tertiary facility to do those things that we don't do. Don't give up on your community hospital. There are people that work there that love your community, that are dedicated to your community, and they have skill sets that are equal to, if not preceding those in larger hospitals. Mm -hmm. I've worked in larger hospitals. They're great. But you know what? Small hospitals are just as great. Sure. And that's fantastic. That, that, is, that is a wonderful word. And you know, it, it's so reassuring for for people in more rural areas. You're, you're dead on exactly right. Thanks for saying that. Well, I don't care, folks. You know, we, uh, we've had a good day today. It's been great talking with Dr. Kathy Bunning, the CEO of Fairfield Memorial Hospital in Fairfield, Illinois. Uh, Kathy, you're coming back because I had way too much fun 
where you know anytime you have something else you want to talk about you're 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 going to be an i don't care staple i can tell you that right now i love it so thank you uh, absolutely thanks for being with us and so you know how to find me uh every friday morning live on marketscale.com at 9 30 a.m central if you miss it you can go to spotify and itunes and, and I'll, I'll say what I say every week. If you haven't subscribed to I Don't Care with Kevin Stevenson, what's your problem? Why haven't you done it yet? <laughs> but I'm going to close a little bit differently today. And I'm going to say, sick em bears to the Baylor University National Championship men's basketball team. I'm heading to a parade. Y'all have a good day.